Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. She wasn't supposed to be Annie, but autocorrect has been causing problems for writers longer than any of us realize. It was in 1861, and the patriarch of the Riley family, Reuben, left home to join the Union Army. He became the captain of the first company of Indiana volunteers from Hancock County. Reuben was injured during the Battle of Rich Mountain in Virginia and was sent home to his family once he recovered. Not long after Reuben's return to Greenfield, Indiana, their household grew by one. An orphan named Mary Alice Smith came to live with them in the winter of 1861. She was about 11 years old, but her early life is a mystery. We don't know the circumstances that brought her to the Riley family, but we do know that she was born in Liberty, Indiana, and was about the same age as one of the Riley boys, James. We also know that she wasn't an orphan, at least not in the way that we would think. Her parents' death hadn't been the beginning of her troubles. They had separated when she was four years old, and she was sent to live with her grandmother. It would be another four years before her parents actually died. Mary Alice, who everyone just called Allie, was forced to bounce from one extended family member to the next, until she ran out and had to rely on the kindness of strangers. At that time, there weren't many institutions that took in abandoned kids, especially not on the frontier. Adoption wasn't common, and the foster care system didn't exist yet, so many children like Allie were sent to live with families looking for an extra pair of hands to help around the house. Reuben Riley, well known to be a kind and generous man, was thinking about returning to the battlefield, and he knew that his wife would need help while he was gone. The bargain was always pretty simple. A child would be taken in and exchanged for bed and board, they would do chores, look after children, and generally earn their keep. Allie had boarded with other families before the Rileys, so she likely knew what to expect. Reuben Riley's son James remembered Allie's arrival well, later describing her as a slender wisp of a girl with spindle ankles, barely dressed for winter weather in a calico skirt and a summer hat. She had slim, blue-veined wrists that she tossed among those loose and ragged tresses of her yellow hair. But what really stood out to James was the hollow, pale blue eyes, which followed every motion with an alertness that suggested a somewhat suspicious mind. Maybe she didn't trust the new family, or maybe she didn't trust anyone. Happily, Allie warmed up to the Rileys and soon became the children's favorite playmate. They complained whenever chores took her away from them and delighted in her infectious sense of humor and optimism. She was even known to say, I'm mighty glad I'm come to live in this here house. Allie's joy in little things deeply impacted James, who recalled how she turned her chores into little games, talked to herself, and how she found their grand curving staircase majestic. James carried her memory with him, even after she left the family. Many years later, in 1885, a now grown-up and respected author, James Whitcomb Riley, published a poem called Elf Child. The poem described the day a little wisp of a child came to live with his family, the chores she did, and the wild, scary stories she told. Riley published the poem in the Indianapolis Journal, but changed the title to 
Little Orphan Alley to better remember his old friend. But then something bizarre happened when the poem went to the printers, although no one knows how. Maybe the typesetter wasn't paying enough attention. Maybe James, like some of us, had handwriting that sent teachers into fits of despair. In any case, the L's were replaced with N's, and little orphan Annie was born. From there, Annie seemed to take on a life of her own. In 1918, she became a silent film character, the subject of a song arrangement, and of course, most famously, the 1924 comic strip. The New York Daily News published the first strip that year about little orphan Annie, her dog Sandy, and Daddy Warbucks. Annie had grown far and beyond what James Riley had likely expected when he had written a poem about a childhood friend. I wonder if either James or Allie expected to see Annie one day make her debut on Broadway, or grace the silver screen not once, not twice, but four times. Riley published other poems about Allie over the years, Where Is Mary Alice Smith being one of the most well-known. He wouldn't have had to look too hard to find her, though. She worked in a tavern briefly after leaving the Riley family, but eventually married and settled down with her husband, John Wesley Gray, in Hancock County, Indiana. But theirs wasn't the viral world that we live in today. She didn't know the poem was about her until 1915. Allie outlived James by several years, surrounded by children and grandchildren who might as well have delighted in the Indiana tradition of reading Little Orphan Annie around Halloween. Despite, or perhaps because of, the best efforts of Ye Old Autocorrect, Orphan Annie has gone on to inspire plenty of people with her cheerfulness and optimism. Even another Indiana author, John Gruel, and his popular character, Raggedy Ann. But that's a story for another day. Every so often, doctors come out with studies declaring certain foods as either being healthy or unhealthy. Two cups of coffee a day can prevent heart disease, but the caffeine can spike your anxiety. Eggs are high in vitamins like B12 and riboflavin, but can also negatively affect your cholesterol. It's never fun finding out the foods and beverages we love the most may actually be hurting us, but nowadays we can quickly learn the truth and adjust our diets accordingly. That wasn't the case, however, in 19th century Tokyo, also known as Edo. A disease was running rampant through the country, especially among the emperor's family and other nobles. Back then, they called it kaka, but today it's known by the name beriberi. Unlike other illnesses, which would often target the poor, beriberi was killing Japanese nobility instead. And that led to its other nicknames, the Edo sickness or the affliction of Edo. Someone with beriberi would often get symptoms such as swollen legs, sluggish speech, paralysis, and eventually death, but nobody knew the disease's cause at the time. It struck the emperor's aunt, Princess Kazu, in the late 1800s and kicked off a massive investigation into its origin. Her husband had also died from a similar medical mystery 10 years prior, possibly the same disease. Some doctors first believed beriberi was caused by spending too much time on damp ground, while others prescribed fasting and various homeopathic remedies to cure the condition. A samurai afflicted with the disease agreed to try the herbal remedy one doctor prescribed to him, and he died months later. Mugwort, an aromatic flowering plant, was also sometimes applied to the backs of patients and then burnt off the skin, but it didn't work. As time passed, more of Japan's upper echelon continued to perish from beriberi. 
until a doctor named Kanahiro Takaki took up the cause. Takaki, who had enlisted in the Navy in 1872, witnessed the same illness strike the Japanese sailors that he had served with. Back then, his superiors hadn't thought anything of it, but Takaki knew something was going on. He eventually left the Navy and enrolled in medical school in England. Once he was finally in a position to address the issue, he took action. As the director of the Tokyo Naval Hospital and later the vice director of the Naval Medical Bureau, Takaki started talking with Japanese sailors afflicted by beriberi, and he made some important observations. First, prisoners suffered from the disease more than anyone else on the ship. Sailors and low-level officers were affected slightly less, and higher-ups almost never. He also noticed that the officers ate a diet that was higher in protein than that of the prisoners and attributed that to the cause of beriberi's proliferation among the lower ranks, who almost never ate protein. The disease was also strangely limited to Japan. European and American sailors were not affected by beriberi, but their bread-heavy diets couldn't be adopted by the Japanese sailors. They found it off-putting. Still, Takaki wanted to get to the bottom of the issue. Then, around 1882, he got his chance. A training ship called the Ryuju had been loaded with Japanese cadets and navigated all around the Pacific Rim. It landed in places such as South America, New Zealand, and Hawaii before coming home. Upon its return, the Ryuju had lost 25 members of its 376-person crew to beriberi. Almost half the people on board had developed some form of it as well. So, Takaki's new protein-rich diet was greenlit aboard another training ship, the Tsukuba, which set sail in February of 1884 with 333 sailors on board. There was a lot riding on this journey, as Takaki had assured the emperor that his plan would succeed. Word came back from the ship seven months later in a telegram. It read, Not one patient. Set your mind at ease. When the Tsukuba finally returned, the results spoke for themselves. Fourteen crew members had developed beriberi, and nobody had died. The only reason those fourteen had even contracted it was because they hadn't been following Takaki's diet regimen. After his successful trial, the good doctor had carte blanche to alter the diets of the entire naval fleet. And in doing so, he managed to reduce reports of beriberi by 94%, and nobody else died from it again. Sadly, Takaki's methods were shunned by others in the medical community, and the army was still dealing with beriberi outbreaks regularly. He had tried mixing barley with their daily rice to up their protein intake, but many saw barley as a holdover from ancient traditional methods, rather than something a cutting-edge Western doctor might prescribe. What nobody, including Takaki, realized, however, was that one specific food was slowly killing everyone. It was a staple of their cuisine, and relatively inexpensive, so it was served everywhere. The culprit? White rice. White rice was made through a painstaking process of husking and polishing, resulting in a bright white grain. Unfortunately, that process also stripped the rice of its natural thiamine. Since white rice was a symbol of higher status within Japanese society for a long time, beriberi mostly affected the nobility. It was also served on board Navy vessels in the 1880s as a primary source of energy and sustenance, causing a B-1 shortage in many Japanese sailors. And that's what beriberi really is, a vitamin B-1 or thiamine deficiency. Takaki had figured out that more protein was the way to combat the disease, even if he never understood why the rice was the problem. But his work did help future researchers discover the root cause of beriberi. 
It also earned him a place among Japanese nobility in 1905, as well as a new nickname, the Barley Baron. And following his death in 1920, an Antarctic peninsula was named Kakaki Promontory after him. He is the only Japanese person to have such an honor. That's what you get when you stick to a problem, like white on rice. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.